Our campus pastor is uh, in Israel, so it was going to be a little difficult to try to, uh, to, try to teach it from there. So uh, the privilege falls to me to be able to wrap up our Lies series this weekend. How many of you have gotten something out of this series so far? Good series, isn't it? Well, I, I am very excited. I feel like uh, the Lord's given me something to uh, share with you all today. But uh, first, if you want to do this, go ahead and take out your notes. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to welcome and give a virtual high five to those of you who are tuning in on our live stream. Uh, if you're tuning in on a beach somewhere, we definitely are jealous. If you're tuning in at the gym right now, we definitely are not jealous. If you're tuning in on your car right now, keep both hands on your steering wheel at all times. Good advice, isn't it? <laughs> okay, uh, well, uh, we're wrapping up this series on lies, and today we want to talk about, as we close this series, our finale is on the deadliest lies. I feel like there should be like, dum, 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 right? Yeah, the deadliest lies. You're getting there. You're with me. Okay, so what are these? These are the lies that we tell ourselves, okay? So this weekend, we're going to personalize it. <laughs> okay, so, so thank you. So uh, we're going to personalize it a little bit, and I think here is what is uh, simple about teaching a message on the lies we tell ourselves is, if we're honest, all of us could raise our hands and say, you know, there are lies that I tell myself. Or if you're not raising your hand, I can help you identify the first lie, <laughs> and that is the lie that you're not telling yourself any lies. But I won't pick on you. Let's, uh, let's uh, talk about myself here for a second. Uh, I, uh, my family, we have four kiddos, a 11-year-old, 9-year-old, 8-year-old, and a 2-year-old. And uh, if perhaps you followed, uh, followed me on Facebook or Instagram le- this last week, you have seen that we had a little bit of uh, some struggles with our 2-year-old. His name is Sam, adorable little bundle of crazy awesomeness. Um, but Sam was having some breathing issues this last week. He was having trouble breathing. Can, can I just reach out to all of us parents in this room? There is nothing like your child not being able to breathe that sets you in kind of an all-out panic, yeah. right? I mean, I would say it's maybe akin to finding out your house is burning down, or maybe if you're a dad in this room, it's akin to finding out your daughter has a boyfriend. <laughs> but it put us in a little bit of a panic. Uh, we ended up having to take him to the hospital. Uh, they did a chest x-ray to see if he had pneumonia, ended up putting him on a breathing treatment, and he's better now. But the night that was most concerning to us, it was about 1 a.m. in the morning. Here's the deal. He wasn't, he wasn't sleeping very well. Uh, he was getting up at all hours. He was running this crazy fever, and he was just wheezing like crazy, just sucking to pull that air in. <gasps> and it was about 1 a.m. <clears throat> it was about 1 a.m. on this particular night, and I could hear it. And so I kind of went down the, the hall, and I cracked open the door and pop, popped my head in. And, and sure enough, he's sitting in there in bed, and he kind of looked at me, and, and a little rosy cheeks, and he's all beaming and smiling. <gasps> I said, I, I said, Sam, are you okay? And he goes, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm like, son, you are clearly not fine. You're clearly not fine. But I think there's something that we can pull out of this spiritually 
in how we can sometimes handle our, ourselves. I think it's easy to find ourselves in the same place. Things are clearly not okay in our lives. We're clearly not in a healthy place. We are not living out that truth of God. But when someone asks us, maybe the Holy Spirit comes and kind of gives us one of those checks, our response is, I'm fine, <laughs> right? And so for the next few minutes, uh, here's what I want to ask. For the next 30 minutes or so, would you be willing to take your heart and say, Lord, I bring it before you for some self-examination. Lord, if there's any place in my life, if there's anything in my heart that is a, uh, a portion or piece of me that is buying into lies or is believing these lies, Holy Spirit, as you identify those areas, I, I just give it to you. Amen? 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 amen. Good. If you don't say amen, God's not going to do it. Actually, he probably will, but it's probably safe just to say amen. I'm just kidding. Okay, so let's, we're going to look at three lies, the deadliest lies of the enemy. Uh, obviously, we can't hit them all, but we're going to look at three today. So the first deadliest lie of the enemy is the lie that says, I can change on my own. I got this. I can change on my own. I don't need help. I don't need you. I got this. Well, as a family of six, uh, we, uh, we got to get out of the house at some point. There's just there's too much crazy in one, one, one place. And so one of the things we actually enjoy doing is going for family bike rides. Uh, but I, I've realized that in preparation for a bike ride in our family requires me almost to become a part-time, full-time mechanic. You know, between all the tires that need to be patched and the tires that need to be pumped and the chain that needs to be greased and the handlebars that need to be like readjusted and the seats that need to be readjusted, I'm like, oh my goodness. Finally, we get that all done and then it's packing all the backpacks full of food and packing all the water bottles full of, I guess you don't pack them full of water, but we're gonna pack them full of water, getting all the helmets adjusted and snapped on and ready to go. And finally, we're ready to head out to our adventure to the Parker bike paths. And, and, you know, part of me is like, we're like Star Trek, man, like to boldly go where no one has gone before, right? And then I'm like, well, maybe it's not quite as epic. It's probably like for us, like to slowly go where many, many, many people have biked before. But we have a good time. We head out, we have our bike adventure, uh, and on our return, uh, everything goes in reverse. You know, the backpacks have to be undone, the bottles emptied, the bikes put away, and the helmets removed, and there, my friends, is where we run into a little bit of a hitch. You see, because uh, a few of my children are not quite old enough to figure out how to remove that bike helmet clasp. You know the clasp I'm talking about? That clasp that when you're trying to put it on, if you're not paying very close attention, say you're having a conversation with a friend and you try to click that, ah, oh, why do they make it like that? Well, we run into a little bit of an issue in trying to take them off when we try to remove them. And I can always identify with one of my kids when they're having an issue trying to remove the helmet because I'll see them kind of fidgeting around with it and eventually they kind of do one of these things where they're looking up, like trying to picture it but not being able to see it and just trying to get that thing removed. And eventually, eventually, they'll look at me and say, Dad, help! Yes. And that gets me a pondering because as I walk over there and I reach out to try to help unbuckle their helmet, shall we call it the helmet of bondage? <laughs> and I try to reach in to take that clasp and undo it. Do you know what one of the first things I have to do first is I have to grab their little hands and pull their hands out of the way. Yes. Daddy, help, they say, but they don't move their hands out of the way for me to help. Ooh, Crazy kids. If only they were smart enough to know they couldn't do it on their own. <laughs> you feel it, huh? So listen, I, I think one of the reasons 
why we are compelled to try to fix things on our own is we live in a culture that pushes this self-help idea. You have a condition, here's a pill for that. You have a bad habit, here's a patch for that. You got a funny sensation, go talk to your doctor about that. Do you have a problem, do you have an addiction, here's a book, here's a series, here's a DVD workout video, and you can fix it by yourself. And I think our culture has conditioned us to believe that no matter what the problem is, what your issue is, if you go to the right shelf of a self-help section in your local bookstore, you should be able to find the solution right there. But that goes in complete contrast to what Jesus said when he talks to his disciples in John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear, what's those two words? Much, much fruit, amen. How many of you want much fruit in your life? Come on. It says you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. nothing. Okay, so listen, this is my first time ever teaching in front of you. And I wanted to show myself approved. I wanted to study into the deeper things of God. So I looked up this word nothing right there. Okay. I looked up uh, this word nothing in its original language. I kind of dug into the nuances of this adverb. I researched it in my Greek-English lexicon to follow Paul's instructions to rightly divide the word of truth. This word nothing actually appears 1,633 times in the New Testament. And so I took those 1,633 times and I cross-referenced them with each other so I could try to dig into seeing, Lord, what is the deep truth in this verse that you want us to understand and recognize today? I used every bit of my vast Bible college training to bring to you what I discovered. Nothing means nothing. The definition of nothing is nothing. It means by no means. It negates the proposition. It denies the reality of the possibility. And my friends, now what we find is is, uh, opposite frameworks of belief. We find uh, values that are in contradiction to one another. Either we stand in the camp over here of what our world and our culture says is you can fix it. It's a matter of time. You can figure it out. You're smart enough. You're funny enough. Gosh darn it, people like you. You got this. Or, God forbid, are we willing to come over here to the camp of Jesus? I think it's a safe camp to be in. Where he said, you know what? In me, through me, you will bear much fruit. But if you try to do this thing called life alone, you won't get very far. Mm -hmm. Because on your own, you got nothing. Line number one. Line number one says, I can change on my own. The truth is, true change only happens through God. We can't do it on our own. We can't accomplish it on our own. Okay, let's jump into the second one. The second lie that we want to look at today is that change isn't worth it. Change isn't worth it. And so to to unpack this and study this a little bit, I want to pull up a verse. You guys have probably never seen this before in your lives. It's Romans 12, 2. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. (laughs) You guys, we studied this verse, haven't we? Didn't we go through this once or twice? <laughs> no, this is a verse that probably as a church you're quite familiar with. You might have this memorized on your own because this is kind of a core verse that often we hear Pastor John teaching through. And I love this. It's such a powerful verse and I'm not gonna rehash anything that maybe he's taught before, but there's something I feel like as I was looking at this this week that really jumped out to me and I wanna share with you. Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, so I dug into this word. It's actually a Greek verb, anakinosis, okay? And the use of the verb here is in its uh, progressive tense. Now, I am not a school teacher. I've never taught English in my life. I barely passed English, but I know how to Google. (laughs) And so I Googled, what is a progressive tense? Here's what I found out. The progressive tense of a verb means ongoing action. You with me? 
ongoing action, which makes complete sense because it says we are transformed by the renewing, the ongoing action that takes place through the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen? Okay, so now if you will walk with me, I want to take a couple minutes and kind of come down a, 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 a place where I feel like the Lord showed me. And to do that, I want you to imagine that you have a favorite t-shirt. Okay, you have a favorite t-shirt. Maybe you're saying, Ben, why does my favorite t-shirt have Mr. Clean on it? I don't know. It's your favorite t-shirt. You tell me. But maybe you have a favorite t-shirt. Uh, maybe you wore it this weekend. Maybe you tried to wear it today and your wife was like, you are not leaving the house in that t-shirt. Okay, but you've got your favorite t-shirt and inevitably, like what happens to favorite t-shirts is they get stained, right? Maybe you were out, uh, I don't know, changing your lawnmower grease or something, or uh, maybe you just have children. I don't know what it was, but somehow your favorite shirt got stained and now your favorite t-shirt is no longer clean, but it's pretty dirty. There's even a shoe print across the front of your favorite t-shirt. You go, Ben, why is there a shoe print on the front of my t-shirt? I don't know, it's your shirt, but your shirt. <laughs> you can laugh, we're having a little fun, aren't we? Some of you are like, what did I walk into this morning? Oh, Lord, help me. Okay. <laughs> your, shoe, your, your shoe printed uh, uh, stained t-shirt but we don't like it that way. We want it clean. We want it back to where it was. And so we're going to take your dirty t-shirt. Let's lay it on a table. We're going to take some soap. Do one drop of soap. Boop, right there. One drop of water. Boop, right there. Take that t-shirt. Give it a good snap. Bam, presto. That shirt is now still dirty, right? Because to clean a dirty shirt requires a process. It's an ongoing process, similar to the tense of that verb renewing, an ongoing event. Yes or no? Yes. You still with me? If you're with me, say holla. Okay, cool. All right, so it's an ongoing process that for many of us, thank Jesus, is done with this miracle of modern science called a washing machine. Some of you are like, a what? <laughs> a washing machine. And I found out yesterday as I was uh, uh, teaching this that someone said, well, the top loaders don't even have what you're talking about. So let's say, not whether you have a front loading or top loading, but an older style top loading washing machine. I've got to get real specific here used to have this thing in the middle of it that kind of did all the working to get all the stains and all the dirt out. And that thing in the middle of your washing machine was called a? Agitator. An agitator. Can you agree with me that change is agitating? Yeah. It is frustrating. Change is not easy. Change is not something that I think a lot of us wake up first thing in the morning and, go, and we go, Lord, I embrace change today. <laughs> more of it, Lord. I'm not getting enough. I need more change. Life is not agitating enough. I need more. No? Okay. Good. I'm not there either. But it's agitating. Now can you imagine our poor t-shirt and the agitation that it's going through as we now have to take a proper process that requires more than one drop of soap and one drop of water and a good old snap, but we actually have to take it through the process of putting it in the washing machine and letting the washing machine do its job. That t-shirt's got to be thinking, oh, come on, man, this is no fun. This isn't pleasant. This process is ruining me. I hate this agitating washing machine. I just get stretched out a little bit more. I just get a little bit more of the fabric worked off of me. I get a little bit more worn down. Do you realize if you keep doing this to me, eventually I'm not even going to resemble that t-shirt that you love so much that you had to buy from the store and own. <laughs> and God is like, yep. yep. God says, man, I want you to hear my heart. Don't you realize my whole mission is to stretch you out of your complacent comfort zone? God says, don't you realize my goal for you is to work out of you all of the priorities and all the perspectives of this world? 
Don't you see I'm trying to wear down all of your sharp edges and your bristly and selfish behaviors? God says, get this, understand, my whole intention is to eventually ensure that you no longer resemble what you once were. But boy, is it agitating, isn't it? I want to look at a verse here in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 12, 11. It says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, I want to talk about this word discipline for just a moment because when I have read this verse in the past, the first uh, definition of discipline that comes to my mind is the idea of uh, punishment or correction, which makes perfect sense. It fits in there well. Uh, no punishment or no correction seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Okay, all of the, the kids in this room could be like, amen. All of us adults who at one point were corrected in our lives can probably be like, Amen. But I think there's another uh, usage of this word that also we can plug in here, and that's when we talk about self-discipline, or discipline is the idea of self-control or priorities or prioritizing our life. And if we plug in there, it says no, self, uh, no self-control or no prioritizing of our life seems pleasant at the time, but painful. However, later it produces a harvest. I think that's just as valid. And I think as we look at this lie, the lie that says change isn't worth it, it requires us to wrestle with two, uh, two different pieces of this. It's the battle between the prize and the price, right? All of us love the prize. We want the prize. We're here for the prize. Not as many of us maybe want to pay the price. See, I love the idea of being a runner. I don't like the idea of getting up at 5 a.m. in the morning to go run. I don't like the idea of having to push away that fresh plate of hot baked brownies. Okay, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe your workout routine is kind of like mine. You know, I do half of my sit-ups in the morning and half in the evening. I'm sorry, I mean, I do a half a sit-up when I get up in the morning and half a sit-up when I lay down in the evening. I was actually, my, my son's doing cross-country and he was like, Dad, will you go run with me? And it's like, a, a, he does about two miles around our neighborhood. And I literally, I barely got to the first mile. And I just was like, <laughs> woo! And he's like, Dad, are you okay? And I go, I'm fine. I find, you know, like, like this is the battle that we wrestle with, the battle between the prize and the price. And line number two says change isn't worth it. The truth is change is the prize that is ultimately worth the price of the pain. Let me show you an example where we can see this. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians. This is a uh, letter that was written by Paul to the church in Corinth. So these are new believers who have come out of their old culture, who have stepped out of a very uh, 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 heathenistic culture, hedonistic culture, and have, uh, have said, man, we're having to give up a lot here. We're having to sacrifice. This is frustrating. This is agitating. And to them, Paul writes this, and I don't know, maybe there's something in here that we could pull out too. Paul says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the? You guys did really good on that. You're up next time. Run in such a way as to get the? That was good. I like that. Okay, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the, let's everybody say it together. The prize. Listen, was Paul oblivious to the price? 
Was he oblivious to the pain that would be associated with preparing for this particular race that he's talking about? No, he clearly outlines it. The training that will need to take place, the sacrifice that will need to take place, the discipline, the self-control, the prioritizing that will need to take place if someone is gonna be prepared to win the prize in this race. So if he didn't, if he wasn't oblivious to the price and he wasn't oblivious to the pain, then why in the world would he still encourage us to run a race? Because it's about the prize, right? All right, we're gonna go to our third deadly slice. Are you guys still with me? Some of you are like, brother, I needed way more coffee before I walked in this morning. You're just a trip. Imagine my wife. Imagine what she has to go through. <laughs> okay, line number three, we wanna look at. Line number three says, change is a formula. If we go back to that self-help section in your local bookstore, you'll find five steps of financial freedom, seven steps to highly effective people, three building blocks to the better you. I actually just downloaded a book this week on my Kindle, which means it's kind of, uh, it's a little bit hypocritical for me to criticize it. I'm not criticizing it, but I think it's interesting. Uh, the book is by a great man of God named Bill Hybels. It's called 10 Steps to Simplify Your Life. It's a 320-page book. <laughs> And again, I'm not criticizing. I look forward to reading that book and hopefully applying at least one of those steps into simplifying my life. <laughs> but I think there's something to be gleaned here that at some level, we, we have this ingrained desire for order, control, for understanding in our lives. I think somehow we want to try to distill a changed life down to simple formaic steps if we can figure it out how it works. Now listen, if you're trying to make Chef Emeril's peach flambe cheesecake, bam! You need order, right? You need a pattern. You need a systematic formula called a recipe. Some of you are like, it's not called that in my house. Are you listening? We need to... <laughs> recipe. But listen, if you're trying to figure out how to make those changes in your life, you know this. It's not as simple as A through Z, one through five. Follow these bullet points, go through these steps, and bam, you have a changed life. What I find out more often than not is true biblical change seldom follows a single repeatable formula. I don't see that in scripture. Here's what I see. I see Jesus mixing his own saliva with a clot of dirt to heal a man's eyes. I see Moses bring water out of a rock by beating it with a stick. I see Peter who paid his taxes with money he found inside of a fish. Jonah coincidentally had his life changed inside of a fish as well. For over one year, Elijah was fed by ravens. Literally, birds brought him meat and bread every day to sustain him. We see that the children of Israel, while they wandered the desert for 40 years in the wilderness, they were sustained by this, this uh, 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 unknown, white, fluffy stuff they called manna. God used a talking donkey to convince the, convince the prophet Balaam to change his course. God kicked Saul off of his donkey, and one might argue onto his donkey, I didn't learn that from Bible college. <laughs> <laughs> to convince him to change the course of his life and then change his name to, uh, to Paul as well. I even once heard of an evangelist who drop-kicked a dead baby across the auditorium because the Holy Spirit said, if you do this, that baby will come back to life. And what's crazier still is it did. 
Now, here's the thing is as soon as we begin to want to embrace a formula for our lives, great, okay, sounds good. Mamas, grab your babies, line up here. I'm going to get the soccer team. Let's have an anointed time of baby kicking right here because it doesn't work like that. And that would be messed up. You're like, I am not coming back next weekend. (laughs) No, here's what I see in scripture. I see that true biblical change is activated by whatever God chooses to use. It's activated by whatever God decides, you know what, that's what I'm gonna use. Which I don't know for you, but for me, that gives me hope. Because scripture says he chose the lowly things and the things that are not. (laughs) And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Then you can sign me up. (laughs) What we do see in scripture is that often God encourages us or challenges us to utilize the tools that he's given us, our talents, our abilities, our common sense. But there's also a trust that's required in God's timing throughout the process. See, I've seen the Holy Spirit do in five seconds what it would take me to do in multiple lifetimes. Now, maybe we could argue that I'm just very slow (laughs) and stubborn, and I like to do it my own way. But I think that power of God is very clearly activated, and we can see it all around us. I have witnessed God's power supernaturally transform a person with addiction right before my eyes. Someone who is chained to sin and guilt and bondage, and in a moment, bam, that power of God was there and they were set free. But then I've also been a part with other people of a process as they wrestled and they struggled with a tendency or a behavior or an addiction. And, <coughs> excuse me someone who maybe even was on their knees with God saying, God, please, I'll do whatever it takes. I've got to see this change in my life. Someone who could barely see transformation day to day. If you want to argue with me that God only moves in one formula, then we have to come to grips with how we solve this dissonance of God's methods. Because in scripture, we, we, we find this, uh, this dichotomy of how God moves. We can see one end, of the, one end of the spectrum in 2 Corinthians. This is Paul again writing a letter to the, uh, the church in Corinth. It took a second letter. Apparently they were stubborn too, so I feel like I'm in good company. Uh, but 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Come on. The old is gone, the new is here. And I love this. Here's what I love about this verse. This speaks of the supernatural, miraculous power of God that happens in a moment. Bam! Which is way better than emeralds. Bam. Right? Yeah. Okay, and, 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 here's what we, and here's what we see. We see that, that uh, when someone accepts Christ, okay, we have that moment of transformation in a heartbeat. Boom, everything is different. What was no longer is, and what wasn't now is. Woo! Is it too early to woo? Okay, okay. So that's the power of God we see just activated that can take place in so many different situations in our life. But then we also find the other end of the spectrum, and we'll look at that here in Psalm 32, 8. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. And here we see a God who doesn't necessarily show up and go boom, 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 but who says, you know what? No matter what you're going through, I'm there with you. I will take this journey alongside of you. I will take your hand, we will walk through this, and what you have to go through, I will walk through, and we will do this thing together. Now, I think one of the challenges that we find is that there is this tension between the power of God and the process of God. What I've seen is there shouldn't be, there's no need to have a tension there because God does and will use both in our lives, doesn't he? 
See, one is not better than the other. One is not more spiritual than the other. The fact is at different times in our lives, God will use both his power and his process to accomplish his purpose in our lives. Lie number three tells us that change is, a per, uh, change is a formula. The truth is change requires us to trust both in God's power and in his process. Now, as we wrap up, I went to God and said, okay, God, help me just you know, impress on my heart how we're supposed to, to, to wrap up. What direction, Lord, do you want me to go on this? And, and again, I'm not prioritizing one against the other, but I really felt like God said, focus on the process side of this. So I want to speak to you in this room who, who wrestle with the process. Now, maybe you're on the far end of that spectrum where you, you literally could be sitting here with arms crossed and saying, you know what? I am so sick of hearing about God's power. I'm so sick of the process. I am so tired of searching to find any kind of transformation. I'm done. Maybe you're not quite there. Maybe you're just in a place where you say, Lord, I, I trust you, but doggone it, I wish, I wish you could just be more clear. God, I wish you could show me what you're doing right now because I don't understand. God, and why don't you? Why don't you show up more in your power? And God, why do I have to go through all this process? Because it just doesn't make any sense to me. So wherever maybe you find yourself on that spectrum, I want to speak to that. And through that, I want to share a little bit of a chapter out of my story. The night before Thanksgiving 2008, I experienced a horrific motorcycle accident that six years later, God is still using to try to teach me his process. In the accident, I shattered my hip socket into 11 different pieces. I injured two ligaments in my knee and I tore the third one out completely. Ultimately, I lost nerve function in my leg and foot and with that, the ability to walk without aid. One doctor at the time even reported, man, I didn't even think you were ever gonna walk again. At the time, a 29-year-old youth pastor with a young family, I remember laying in that hospital bed in horrific pain, unaware of any idea of what my future would look like, begging God to unleash his power and heal me. I had seen that power activated and at work in people's lives. I'd seen it in different areas in my life, and I knew God had the power to move, the power to heal, that power to activate something. And so we prayed, I prayed, my wife prayed, our friends and family prayed, many of you here at this church prayed. And yet, perhaps like some of you have experienced, I did not experience a miraculous healing through the power of God. Instead, over the last six years, I've gone through what has been a slow process of recovery, having endured two major hip surgeries, two more gruesome foot reconstructions, the torture of nerve testing and physical therapy and rehab and nerve blockers and multiple medications, as well as the constant presence of burning nerve pain and permanent limited mobility. I've experienced the anguish of unmet goals and unanswered questions and that frustration with God and that personal embarrassment. The constant physical pain and deep, dark seasons of discouragement and depression. Still today, even as I stand up here before you, I, I wrestle with the spiritual implications and the physical complications that have come out of that event. Now, as you listen here, you, you might have the response that goes, that's unbelievable. That's, wow, I, I, my life doesn't even compare to that. Or you could go, you give me the mic and I will tell you a real story. My goal is not to be up here and to compare battle scars or to, to say, look how bad I've had it or look how much worse your story might be. 
but to say, you know what, can I use my story as an example to walk through how God's teaching me on process? One of the verses that the Holy Spirit continued to bring back to my heart was this verse in Psalm 27. That's verses uh, 13 and 14. And let me just pause before we read this. The author of this is David. Now, they don't know when in David's life he wrote this. So I want you to connect in with this before we look at what this verse has to say because it could have been when David was still running for his life from a crazy King Saul who was out to try to kill him. And he's hiding in caves like, dear God, will you, will you do something here? But there are some people that also believe that David wrote this towards the end of his life. Interesting, when he had experienced most of his life, it was already behind him, but he still had this desire to see God do something. And I think wherever we find ourselves today, we can tie into that prayer that David writes right here where he says, I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I hate this. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. I take it back. I don't like this verse. Let's do another one. <laughs> Habakkuk 2 verse 3 says, Though it linger, <laughs> wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. We're on a rough roll. Let's try one more. Let's go for three. Third time's the charm. Isaiah 40 31 says, They who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. And as I look at scripture, what I find over and over is this thread that is woven through of a God up in heaven who says, I love you so much, but there are some times that there is just a process to this. And I promise you, I'll never let you go. I'll never leave you. I'll never abandon you. But you're just gonna have to wait and trust me. You guys have time for me to share a final thought with you? Yes. Good. I was going to share it anyway. <laughs> it was the year 216 BC. The Carthaginian king Hannibal stood atop the lofty Col de la Travesse Pass on top of the Alps, overlooking the mighty Roman Empire, the kingdom that he had come to destroy. Inflamed with his passion and hatred, he drove a tattered army down the mountainside. But before his quest for glory could be realized, Hannibal had to overcome one last obstacle blocking his path. An enormous monstrosity of a rock wedged in between the ravine walls and the valley floor below it. And it was impossible for Hannibal to move his chariots and wagons through the pass unless that rock was dislodged and moved out of the way. Attempts to crack the rock with picks and hammers failed. Sacrifices and incantations likewise produced no results. Finally, desperate and impatient, Hannibal cried out, burn it! To his half-dead troops, this irrational command seemed insane and ridiculous. What good could a flickering flame do to this behemoth of an obstacle standing in their way? Nevertheless, within a few hours, trees were chopped and logs were piled and the base of this mighty rock was surrounded by wood to fuel the fire that Hannibal had commanded. After the wood was arranged at the base of the rock, the soldiers ignited it and watched in complacent exhaustion 
as the small embers formed a slow building glow around the rock. Minutes faded into hours as this tree fuel blaze lapped up at the rock. And then, finally, suddenly, a deafening crack was heard throughout the ranks. This impenetrable rock, able to withstand the chisel and the hammer and certainly the pagan sacrifices, could not withstand the heat and the intensity of this now raging inferno. The process of fire had split this great rock in two, making way for Hannibal and his army to descend upon Rome and to forever change the course of history. And may I ask you as a final thought, who's to believe that the pain that you're going through, that the fire that you are experiencing, this season maybe of pressing or of waiting that you're going through is just a precursor a preface to an entire book that the Lord wants to write in your life of freedom and transformation and release from bondage and truth and life. Does anybody in this room believe this? I mean, here's the deal. I know it's a Sunday morning and we got our routines and we got how we do stuff here, but here's what I want to ask. If you say, you know what? I believe God wants to give me a breakthrough today. I believe that there is a process I've been going through that I, I want to give to God. I want to surrender to Him. I believe that there's a reason for this pain. There's a reason for this fire I'm going through. And God, I want to give it to you. Are you willing to stand up with me right now? Can I show that verse? Uh, uh, Philippians 1.6. Do we have that verse? Philippians 1.6. I know it, so if it's not up on the screen, that's fine. Philippians 1.6 says this. To him who has begun a good work in you. There it is. I'm sorry. Be confident this. That he who began a good work in you. Listen. No matter where you are at in this room. And I'm sorry I'm getting a little fired up about this. You guys okay? Okay. No matter where you find yourself spiritually. Whether you find yourself questioning the things of God. Or whether you find yourself matured in your faith. I want you to know that God has begun a good work in you. He has. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't left you. He said, I'm here. I'm ready. Man, if you're ready, I'm ready. It says, he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Come on. Come on. Can we just give it to God right now? Can we just tell him that he's worthy and we give it to him right now?
how we want to close. If you're just worshiping God, you can keep doing that. I don't want to interrupt that. Uh, we have all of the elements available. You're welcome to, to, to take part in any of those, but our, our, our heart for this weekend is that you will be able to respond at the cross. You see at each of your chairs, there is that card, uh, the paper that we use at the cross. And here's what I want to challenge you is before you leave, we're going to go into this just worship and just giving it to God. But before you leave, I would invite you to take that piece of paper, write down on it what it is that you need to bring to the cross and pin that sucker to the cross before you go. Man, it's at the cross where we find transformation. It's at the cross where we see a living example of why the pain that we go through is ultimately worth it because of the prize that we will receive. It's at the cross where truth is made real and alive. It's at the cross where we exchange all of who we are for all of the life that God has to offer us. My question to you is, what do you need to bring to the cross this morning? Wherever you're at in this room, I want to challenge you, please, man, don't just walk out. Don't just go, good word. But do something about it. Do something about what the Holy Spirit is speaking into your heart right now. And write that down. And maybe it's saying, God, I bring this person. I bring this situation that maybe I've even felt like I need to abandon and give up on because I haven't seen anything happening. But God, I bring that. I bring that back to you. I put that on the cross because God, I trust you. And I believe that it will most certainly happen. Though it linger, I will wait for it. Maybe you need to bring to uh, the cross an area of addiction or an area of struggle that you wrestle with again and again and again. And you just, maybe it's for the umpteenth time, you just go, God, I'm just bringing that back to you again. God, I, I, I take that off of my shoulders. I take that weight off of me one more time. And God, I just put that on the cross. Whatever it is, before we wrap up this morning, I want to challenge you. What is it that you need to bring to the cross? Let's worship God.